Amen. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Christian. Um, Josh has asked me to speak tonight because he just had a baby. So I am preaching. We're going to be going through, we're going to continue our series in Judges. So if you guys could open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Judges chapter 7. So go ahead, Judges chapter 7. While you guys are turning there, um, I actually lead the worship band here and the sound team. And we need people to serve. So if you play an instrument, Daniela, Amanda, please come talk to me. We'll get you on the team. If you sing, Emily Miller, come talk to me. We'll get you on the team. If you want to learn how to do sound, come talk to me. All of our sound people actually didn't have a whole lot of experience before they started doing sound, but now they're fully trained up. So even if you don't know how to do sound, come talk to me, and we can hook it up. So Judges chapter 7, so the way things have fallen for me, unfortunately, is that tonight I have to preach through two entire chapters of Judges. And there's a lot of stuff that happens. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot of the plot that you're going to have to know. And I don't think we're going to have time to to read through all of it in its entirety. And so the plan for tonight is I have studied the passage, and I'm just going to summarize it for you. I'm going to give you the cliff notes, the spark notes version of it, just so that you get an idea of like the plot. You understand what happens, what Gideon's doing, how it all turns out. And so that's the plan. I hope, I'm a visual person, so I hope that you'll be able to see some of these things. You'll be able to smell and hear and taste some of the things that are happening in this story. And then from there, after we get the big picture, the broad strokes, we're going to zoom in to certain parts of the story. We're going to look at the text. We're going to take it line by line. And we're going to exegete. We're going to extract the truth from it and see what the text has to say about who God is and what he's done for us and how this points us to Jesus. So that's the plan for tonight. Okay. So we are actually jumping in in the middle of Gideon's story. Last week, if you guys remember, we're going to just refresh your memories real quick. Andrew preached, and he started Gideon's story, right? Andrew talked about how Gideon was called. Remember, because of Israel's sin, God had gave them, handed them over to the hands of Midian. And so, um, so Midian, the Midianites, they were oppressing Israel, right? They were attacking them whenever they would plant their crops, they would steal all their produce, and then... So Israel cries out to God, they ask God to save them, to rescue them, and so God reaches out and talks to Gideon. And he tells Gideon that he's going to use Gideon to rescue them from the Midianites, and God tells him that the first thing he needs to do is he needs to tear down his father's altars to Baal. Um... Last week, Andrew called them altars instead of altars, and I gave him a really hard time about it after Kairos, but he had to tear down his father's altars and the Asherah and basically destroy his father's idols, and so that's the first thing that Gideon had to do. So he did that, and then when the people of the town saw that he did this, they all wanted to kill him, 
but his father convinced them otherwise. So after this, Gideon begins to muster his army, and he asks God for a sign. He asks him for the sign of the fleeces, right? He says, make the ground wet, but I want the fleece to be dry. And God does it, and then he says, okay, now I want you to do the opposite. I want the ground dry, but I want the fleece to be wet. And God does it. And so God does both things. So he affirms both times that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. God will be with Gideon, and he's going to use Gideon to rescue Israel from the Midianites. That's what Andrew preached on last week. Now we hit chapter 7. Does that make sense? Hopefully this is something that you remember, and I'm not speaking nonsense. Okay, so chapter 7, this is where we start. If you guys will look in your Bibles at verse 1, we'll read this one verse together, and then I'll start summarizing from there. Then Jerubiel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And so I want to set the stage real quick. There are two kind of mountain ranges. And is this this too bad? No way! Ooh, you can hear that. I really don't want to use a microphone, though. I'll just take, I'll just, I'll just, I got it. Check, check. All right. Man, it was my earring. That's a shame. Okay. That's the Lord telling me to not wear that one anymore. Okay, so we read that first verse. Here's the, here's the setting. Okay, there are two mountains. It's not my earring. That's my. There are two mountains here. So there's one mountain to the north, and that one is the hill of Moreh. And then there's another mountain to the south, where the spring of Herod is. And in between these two mountains, there's a valley. Okay, this is the valley of Jezreel, and in this valley, that's where the Midianite army is. Okay, these are the bad guys. These are the ones who are oppressing um, the Israelites. So they're in the valley. It's are here. And then over here on this mountain by the spring of Herod is Gideon's army. And so he's up here. Midianites are down here. That's what it looks like. Make sense? Great. So here's the situation. The Midianites who are in the valley, they have 135,000 troops. And Gideon's army, which is all the way up here, by the spring of Herod, has 32,000 troops. I'm going to use this one. It's okay. Check, check. All right. I am Stephen Furtick. Here we go. So, (laughs) this is going to kill me, too. Good. All right. So, 135,000 is what the Midianites have, and Gideon has 32,000 in his army. So Gideon has a smaller army. They're outnumbered about four to one, if you do the math. 135 divided by 32 is about four. It's four and some change, okay? And so what ends up happening is God tells Gideon, even though you're outnumbered, your army is still too big. And so what he tells Gideon to do is he tells Gideon, tell your army if anyone is afraid, If anyone is scared, go home 
and don't fight in the war. And so this is actually part of like the Mosaic law. So in the law, it's written that if people are afraid, if people are scared, they should not go to war, they should go home because the fear of war, the fear of dying is infectious. So if I'm in the army and I'm scared and I start freaking out, the people around me are gonna start freaking out too, okay? And so Gideon tells his army, if you are afraid, go home. And so I've played enough video games to know that if I'm outnumbered four to one, if my whole team quits and I'm outnumbered four to one, I am not going to win that game, right? That's why I'm stuck in gold in Overwatch, but also I just suck at the game. So they're outnumbered four to one, so Gideon tells his army, if you're scared, go home. Some people in the army are like, okay, there's 135,000 of them, there's only 32,000 of us, we're outnumbered four to one, yeah, I'm gonna go home. And so some of the soldiers leave. This was an army of 32,000, 22,000 of them leave, which drops them down to 10,000. So before this, they were outnumbered four to one. Now they are outnumbered 13 to one. God, however, still thinks that the army is too big. So God tells Gideon, go down to the water and have your army drink from the water. He says, okay. So he takes his army down. They drink from the water. And then God says, I want you to watch how they drink. I don't know if this was, I read some stuff. Some of it said it was completely arbitrary. Some of it said, I don't know. I don't know why he chose what he chose. But there were two ways that people decided to drink. The first way was some of them cupped the water in their hand and they brought it to their mouth and they drank it like that. The other kinds of people, so those people Gideon took and he set them to one side. And then the other people, they got down on their knees and just drank straight out of the water. That's odd to me. But, he put, but Gideon put those guys to the other side. So on one side, you have people on their knees drinking. On the other side, you have people bringing their hands to their mouths and drinking. I don't know who would go on their knees and just stick their face in the water and drink. That seems weird to me. It's probably the same kind of people that pour their milk before their cereal. But apparently... That was a common way of doing it because 9,700 of them got on their knees and drank from the water. Only 300 of them cupped it and used their hands and drank it like that. So only 300 did that. So just imagine this real quick. Like imagine Gideon, he's like separating people. He's watching them drink. He's counting them. And he's thinking to himself, okay, 300 of them are drinking with their hands. 97, okay, so we, we start with 10,000. If we lose the 300, then that won't hurt us too bad. 300 is not that much compared to 10,000. I think we'll still be okay if we lose the 300 that cupped the water with their hands. But God says, Gideon, actually, you have it backwards. The 300 are the ones that you're going to keep. The 9,700 you need to send home. Okay, and so Gideon is left with 300 troops, which is not very many considering the Midianites have 135,000 troops. Now we can look at these numbers in our Bibles and on the page, but I wanted to give you guys a visual of what physically this looks like. I thought this was like hilarious to me. And so this right here represents... Gideon's army. There's literally 300 little dots right there. This is six rows of 50. So those are 300 dots. Okay, that's Gideon's army, 300 dots. If we zoom out a little bit, 
This is 10,000, okay? Gideon's army is in that top left corner right there compared to 10,000, which is all of that. So it's a pretty, it's a big difference, right? The issue is there are not 10,000 Midianites. There are 135,000 Midianites. And so that looks like this. All the way up there is Gideon's army, and this whole thing is their army. And so you're thinking about this, right? You see, Gideon isn't looking at little dots on a screen. Each one of those dots represents a fully armored human with weapons. And so it's a little bit scary for Gideon, okay? And so God takes all of his army. He leaves them with 300, and then God says, all right, go get them. Like, okay. And so, but God says, Go and fight against Midian, but then he gives him an encouragement. He says, but if you are afraid, and Gideon's like, yeah, I'm afraid. If you are afraid, go down to the camp with your servant Pura, eavesdrop on them, listen to what they have to say, and then you will be strengthened. Okay? And so Gideon goes and does this. He takes his servant. They kind of, they sneak down to the camp And at this point, it's the middle of the night. So the Midianite army is sleeping, except for all the guards who are on watch duty. And what ends up happening is they're they're sneaking by, they're listening by a guard post, and one guard is telling the other guard about his dream. So this guard has a dream. He tells his dream to his friend, and his friend interprets the dream. And he says, dude, do you understand what your dream means? This dream means... Gideon is going to come and his army is going to destroy us because God has given us into his hand. So he tells him the interpretation of this dream and then pretty soon fear starts to spread throughout the Midianite camp and Gideon hears this, Gideon and his servant hear it and then he turns to Pura and is like, dude, we're going to freaking win this thing. And so he runs back to the camp and he tells everyone what they heard and then they start getting ready for battle. So they make a little huddle Gideon turns into a coach. He turns into Steve Kerr, and he says, all right, here's the game plan. We're going to split up into three groups. We're going to surround the Midianite camp, and in one hand, you're going to have a torch and a jar, and in your other hand, you're going to have a trumpet, okay? And then when I give the signal, you're going to smash your jar, you're going to raise your torch, and then you're going to blow your trumpet. And then all the soldiers are looking at him like, okay, We smash the jar, we raise the torch, we blow the trumpet, and then what? And Gideon's like, no, that's it. You smash your jar, you raise your torch, and you blow your trumpet. And I imagine there's this, like, awkward silence. (laughs) Like, you're telling me we're going to smash our jar, raise our torch, blow our trumpet, and that's it. Yep. All right, then. And they go, they do it. That's literally what they do. And then so everything actually goes as planned. So the 300 of them, they surround the camp. Gideon smashes his jar. He raises his trumpet. He blows his torch. And then all 300 of them do exactly the same thing. They smash their jar, raise their torch, blow their trumpet. And then they give this big shout. At the top of their lungs, they scream, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And now remember, this is in the middle of the night. Okay, and so the Midianites are sleeping, and so just imagine you're in this camp, and you're sleeping, and and you wake up, and your left cheek is a little bit wet because you've been drooling all night, and you remember, and you hear the sound of people shouting, 
and they're shouting a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And you're thinking, Gideon, I know that name. This dude just had a dream about Gideon destroying us. And then you hear the sound of all this shattering, all these jars being shattered. And then all these trumpets, 300 trumpets are blowing. And so it's probably a pretty loud sound, right? And then so you stumble out of bed, you start walking towards the door, you step on a Lego, you hit your toe on the table of the leg, and you finally get outside and you look around and your camp is surrounded by torches at four in the morning, okay? And back then, so militaristically, a company of soldiers is often led by a leader. So like what, 10, 20, 30, 50 soldiers are led by one leader that often carries a torch and carries a flag and they lead the troops into battle. And so you're seeing all of these torches and you're imagining the thousands and thousands of troops behind those torches. Okay, so that's what it looks like from the inside. And so amid all of this chaos and confusion, it says that God caused the Midianites to start fighting each other. It's dark, there are torches everywhere, people are screaming, glasses breaking. So everyone just grabs the nearest sword and starts swinging it at the closest person because everyone's an enemy and you're just trying to stay alive. So they're killing each other. This was an army of 135,000. 120,000 die in all of this chaos, okay? 89% of the Midianite army dies, and Israel did not draw a single weapon. And so finally, the remaining survivors in all of this start running, they flee, and Gideon and his army finally take up their weapons, and they start chasing them. And Gideon calls out for reinforcements, he calls out to all the different tribes, and he finally calls out to Ephraim, and Ephraim sends troops to cut them off, okay? And so they do, they cut off the fleeing Midianites, and they're able to kill two of their leaders. Their names are Oreb and Zeb. Those are some cool names. Um, but they kill the two leaders, but some of the Midianites still get away, and they start running. Here's where things get a little bit weird. So the people from Ephraim, right, they came and they cut off the Midianites. Now they turn towards Gideon, and they're angry. They ask, Mid- they ask Gideon, why didn't you call us out earlier? Why didn't you call us out when you were attacking them earlier? Why didn't you invite us to that first battle? Why are you only calling us as a last resort? Why are you only bringing us out at the end? Because they didn't participate in the first battle. They don't get the spoil of that battle. They don't get the glory of that battle. And so they're mad. And then so Gideon becomes the greatest politician ever, and he smoothed things over. He flatters them. He says nice things. He tells them they're great. You guys do so much more than I do, and he makes Israel great again. But the people of Ephraim hear him. They like the words that he's saying, and their anger subsides. And here is where we begin to see a shift in Gideon's character. At this point, the battle is basically won. Right? 89% of them are dead, the rest of them are fleeing, but Gideon still wants to capture their two kings. Their kings are Zeba and Zalmunna. We'll read about them in a little bit. But Gideon wants to capture them still, even though they already won the battle. So he and his 300 men continue the pursuit. They keep chasing after the fleeing Midianites. 
they end up arriving in a town called Sukkoth, and they are exhausted. So Gideon asks the leaders of the town of Sukkoth, he says, hey, we're chasing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the Midianite kings. My people are hungry. Do you have any bread that we could eat? We're exhausted. And the leaders of the town tell him, they say kind of like, they mock him a little bit. It's kind of sarcastic. But they kind of say, are you really going to kill the kings of Midian? They still have 15,000 troops left. There's only 300 of you. Do you already have the victory? Are you, are you actually able to kill them? And so Gideon gets mad here. He kind of grows a little bit of a temper. And he says, listen, because you have said this, once I kill them, when I come back here, I am going to flail you with thorns of the wilderness. He's going to make a whip out of like wild thorns and like whip these guys. That's what he threatens to do. Okay. And so he and his 300 men leave and then they go to the next town, which is the town of Penuel. And he tells them the same thing. We're chasing after the kings of Midian. Do you have any bread for us? And the people of the town of Penuel say the same thing. Can you really kill them? Do you already have the victory? There's only 300 of you. Can you guys actually do this? And Gideon tells them kind of the same thing with a little bit different of a consequence. But when I kill them, when I come back in peace, I'm going to tear down this tower. They had this huge tower in Penuel. And so eventually, Gideon and his men, they go and they catch up to the Midianites. They kill them. They catch them by surprise. And they capture those two kings, Ziba and Zalmunna. They capture them. And so with the two kings in custody... Gideon comes back to those same two towns, and he shows up and says, I told you I'd be able to kill them. And then he follows through with everything that he says. So in, in Penuel, he tears down that tower in Sukkoth. It's funny if you read it. In the text, all it says is he teaches them a lesson, which I thought was hilarious. Like, you don't want to get into the details, but he probably did what he said he was going to do. And it's interesting because these towns the town of Penuel and the town of Sukkoth, these aren't Midianite towns. These aren't bad guys. They're, they're, they're kin, they're Israelites. They might not be from the same tribe, but they're, they're on the same team. Yet Gideon is attacking them and tearing down their towers and stuff. And so this is the first time in Judges where one of the judges turns on his own. And then so after this, Gideon then turns to those two kings that he captured, right? So he captured Ziba and Zalmunna, and he talks to them. He asks them questions, and he finds out that these guys killed his brothers. They killed Gideon's brothers. And so Gideon, in his revenge, tells his eldest son to kill these two kings. And his eldest son is still young. He's not a full-grown man yet, and he's too scared, so he won't do it. So Gideon kills them himself. After this, the people of Israel see how Gideon had destroyed the Midianites, saved them, saved them from the Midianites. They, he killed their kings. And so they want to make Gideon their king because they think Gideon was the one who led them to victory. Gideon refuses to be their king and he tells them, you know what, I'm not going to be your king. God should be your king. I'm not your king. So he refuses kingship. However, Although Gideon refuses the title and the responsibility of king, he does not refuse the power and the privilege. And he asks for an offering. He asks for all the people 
from the spoil that we got, he said, give me your earrings, which are made out of gold. And so all the people give them his, their earrings. They give him um, the ornaments that were on the camels. They give him the, the robes that were on the kings of Midian. And from all of these things, Gideon makes an ephod, which is a garment, a ceremonial garment that the high priest would wear whenever he would go and pray or inquire of God. He needed to wear this fancy robe type thing that was all blanged out. And so he makes one, and what he ends up doing is he makes it, he takes it home, he puts it up on a pole, so it's like displayed. And what ends up happening is people of Israel start worshiping this thing that he put up. And here, the irony is super thick, because the first thing, if you guys remember Andrew last week, the first thing Gideon had to do was tear down his father's idols. And what he ends up doing here is he sets up another one that Israel ends up worshiping. Eventually, Gideon has a son who he names Abimelech, which translates to, my father is king, which is weird because he just said he wouldn't be king. We'll learn next week, I think, how terrible of a person Abimelech turns out to be. And eventually, Gideon dies. And then it says, immediately, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after other gods. And that's the end of the story. That's how Gideon's story ends. It's not a happy ending. So that's the story. That's the plot. That's what happens. Hopefully you guys have a a little bit of a picture now of everything that Gideon does. And so now we're going to zoom in on certain parts of this text. And we're going to look at it and see where God is in it and where Jesus is in it. So we're going to look. We're going to start in chapter 7. I'm going to pray that God would help us to faithfully exegete this, and then we'll look at it together. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text, Lord. Thank you for giving us a book like Judges and giving us um, these scriptures, which are all from you. We know that you have breathed them out. And so we pray, God, as we look at this text, would you show us more of who you are? Would you show us how all of this points us to Jesus? Would you show us the gospel in this in a way that is new, in a way that is fresh? Would we be encouraged and convicted and sent from here, empowered by your grace? So be with us now, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So look in your Bibles. I'll have this up on the screen too. Um, But look in your Bibles. I want you to see this with your own eyes. In chapter 7, we're going to start from the top. We're going to read the first eight chapters, or eight verses, not eight chapters, eight verses together. So chapter 7, starting in verse 1, let's read this. It says, Then Jeruvial, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say this one shall not go with you, shall not go. 
So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, shall set by him, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, down, yeah, down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And so if anyone ever tells you that God will never give you more than you can handle, or that God doesn't want you to be overwhelmed, I want you to say to them, then what about Gideon? Gideon was already outnumbered, and God still stripped him of even more troops because God desires glory for himself, and he will not give it to anyone else. If you've read the Bible, you'll see that God has an interesting pattern. He, he takes things that are small, he takes things that are weak, he takes things that are unlikely, and he makes them do great things. When God wanted to create a great nation, a nation whose number is as countless as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore, who did he use to begin this nation? He chose Abraham and his wife Sarah, a barren couple, an elderly couple who had given up trying to have kids years ago. When God wanted to free his people from the slavery of Egypt and wanted to use someone to perform signs and wonders and demand with authority that Pharaoh let his people go, who does he use? He uses Moses, a convict with a speech impediment. When God wants to feed 5,000 people, what does he use to feed them? Five loaves of bread and two fish. He uses the small things. And so when God wants to defeat an army of 135,000, he's going to use 300 men that drink out of their hands. And in all of these things, God uses the small, the weak, the unexpected, so that there can be no other explanation except God did this. There's no other way this could have happened unless God did this. Look at verse 2. It says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And so God wants Gideon to know that it is only by God's grace, it is only by God's work, it is only by God doing anything that he will be saved not by any human strength, not by any human effort, so that Israel cannot boast saying they did anything to earn it. If that sounds familiar, Paul says some of the same things in Ephesians chapter 2. He writes this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so in the same way that Gideon's victory was only because of God's grace, our own salvation is only because of God's grace. Gideon had 300 men and he was facing 135,000. Those are not just slightly unfavorable 
odds. Those are not just bad odds. Those are impossible odds. And the only way that Gideon was going to win was if God would perform a miracle. And in the same way, the debt that we owe because of our sin is not just a big debt. It is not a large debt. It is an infinite debt because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God. And the forgiveness of that debt would take nothing less than a miracle. So there is nothing in our own strength that we could possibly do to get that forgiveness for ourselves. I had a conversation with a friend a few weeks ago, and we talked about whether or not God would love us without Jesus, or whether or not um, God loved us before we believed in Jesus. Does God only love us because Jesus died for us? And it was a good question. It was a good conversation. We talked for a while about it. And I think we kind of came to this conclusion that um, God does love us. God actually did love us before we had believed in Jesus. Paul writes that in Ephesians, he writes, in love, he predestined us before the foundations of the world, before we had believed in Jesus. In Romans, he writes that God displays his love for us in that while we were still sinners, not while we had believed in Jesus, but while we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us. So God's love for us precedes our own salvation, okay? But God's love for us has nothing to do with us being lovely, okay? God's love for us has nothing to do with us being lovely. Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian You don't believe the things that we believe. And if that's the case, if anyone has ever told you or if anyone has ever shown you that Christians are better than you or holier than you or higher than you, that is not true. And anyone who says that probably isn't a Christian. The first step to being a Christian is to recognize that we are actually broken and that we are vile and that we are wicked and that we are sinners and there is nothing that we could do ourselves to fix that. There is nothing in us that could warrant God's love for us. God did not save us because we were good enough or talented enough or lovely enough. He saved Christians solely because he is rich in mercy. He is abounding in steadfast love and he is gracious. I have no merit to woo or delight thee. I have no wisdom nor powers to employ. Yet in thy mercy, how pleasing thou finds me. This is thy pleasure, that thou art my joy. There is nothing in us that could merit God's favor. It is only by God's mercy and grace that he saved us. So next I want to look at how God encourages Gideon. Look at this starting in verse 9 of chapter 7. It says this, That same night, the same night that God had taken all of those troops away from him, leaves them with 300, that same night, The Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. 
And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream and behold, that's three beholds. Behold, I dreamed a dream and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretations, he worshiped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. I'm a Golden State Warriors fan, and so I'm excited for the NBA season about to start. And as much as I'd like to watch every single Warriors game live, I work during the night for most of the week. And so I miss the games often, but as a true fan, I record all of the games so that I can watch it when I get home. And one of Blair's and Adriel's favorite things to do is to tell me the score before I can get home and watch it. They're great friends. But when I finally get home to watch the game, my mindset is different because I already know the score. If, the, if I know that the Warriors already won, I'm not crushed when the opposing team scores a point because I know that in the end, my team wins. Okay, so in the same way, God actually tells Gideon the end of the story. He encourages him by telling him how it's going to end up. He shows Gideon that he will do exactly what he said he will do. God is the one who has written the script, and he has written his victory into it. So Gideon goes back encouraged, knowing that the battle is secured. The thing is, we have that same kind of encouragement. We have the end of the script. We know the score. God has given us the end of the story, and this is how the game ends. Not that one, this one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Life is hard. And people are sinners, we are sinners, and a lot of times it feels like it might be too much to bear. Jesus promised us that we would suffer, that we would enter into heaven through many trials, that the world would hate us because it hated him. But he encourages us and he tells us that he has overcome the world and that he has promised to be with us in our suffering. So when we feel overwhelmed with school and with work and with serving and with family and with friends and with everything, or when we are caught in our depression and we feel terribly lonely and empty and yet at the same time don't want to see anyone, 
when our anxiety keeps us up at night and we're begging for just one hour of sleep, when our family hurts us, when our friends leave us, when we are hurting, when our bones are aching and our hearts are breaking and everything is taking its toll on us. Take heart, brothers and sisters. All is not for naught. We know the end of the story. It doesn't end here. It doesn't end with that. But one day every wrong will be made right. Jesus will wipe away every tear that we've ever shed. Sin will be fully and finally defeated. And death will be no more. You can read the rest of chapter 7 yourself. I'd actually encourage you to read that yourself. But Gideon's plan works. God gives them the victory. The Midianites start running. And Gideon and his army give chase. Now as we get into chapter 8, we see Gideon's character begin to turn. His focus and his actions begin to shift from God to himself. It's interesting in chapter 7, God is actually the primary actor in the story. If you read through it, we see that God himself is the one who tells Gideon that he will give the Midianites into his hand. It says that God will show Gideon who to keep and who to send home. God is the one who encourages and strengthens Gideon. God is the one who sets the Midianites' swords against themselves. But in chapter 8, the voice of God is silent. You don't see anything about God in chapter 8. But instead, Gideon is the one who pursues. Gideon is the one who threatens. Gideon is the one who begins taking his own actions. When Ephraim gets mad at him, rather than appealing to God's call, to God's purpose, to God's command for Gideon, he uses flattery and deception to appease them. When he arrives in Sukkoth and Penuel, the once timid Gideon, the once shy Gideon turns into a tyrant and he turns against his own brethren. Let's read what he does with the kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmun. This is chapter 8, starting in verse 18. This is what it says. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. And so you see what Gideon began and claimed as a work of obedience to God has now been revealed to really be an act of revenge. This was no longer about protecting God's people. This was no longer about ending the oppression, but it was personal vengeance that drove Gideon to do what he did. And so remember, God is after his own glory, and we get the most joy when we give God glory, and we are most satisfied in him. And all sin, regardless of what it is, essentially it boils down to this. We have taken God from his rightful place, and we have put something else in there. All sin boils down to that. More often than not, it's ourselves that we put in there. We make ourselves number one instead of God. 
And as we move through chapter eight, we see less and less the hand of God and we see more and more the hand of Gideon. Though his mouth declares a sword for the Lord, we see that this is more out of personal vengeance. Though he later refuses the title of king and with his mouth, he declares God is their king, his actions say something else. He commands an offering of a king and he even names his son Abimelech which translates to, my father is king. His motives begin to become questionable, and the more he puts himself as number one, the further and further away he steps from God. C.S. Lewis talks about this a little bit. C.S. Lewis talks about how our spiritual lives are kind of like, it's kind of like a tug of war, where each action, each decision, each choice leads us either toward God or away from God. There is no neutral, there is no standing still. And so every small victory over sin can lead to more and bigger victories over sin. And in the same way, every foothold that we give to sin can be used as another point from which the enemy can attack. And so Gideon slowly loses focus from God and begins to focus on himself to the point where he sets up an idol and Israel worships it. So we have to be vigilant in this. We have to be vigilant in maintaining our focus on God's glory. We need to assess the motives behind the things that we do. Even if they're good things, even if they're holy things, the motive and the heart determines if it is pleasing to God and if it is for God's glory or not. So if you serve or you attend a small group to feel good about yourself or to be noticed or to be paid attention to, we need to question if we are focused on God or if we are focused on ourselves. If we are on stage and we're singing or playing an instrument or leading our corporate prayer or giving announcements and you want people to see how good you are or on the flip side of it, you are terribly afraid of what people might think of you, both of these can be indicators of a big fear of man and a small fear of God. And we need to examine if we are focused more on God or on ourselves. If our boyfriend or our girlfriend causes us to be isolated, causes us to slack off on responsibilities God has given us, causes division, we need to examine if this is focused on our pleasure, if this is focused on us or God's glory. And I think this is why God has given us the church. He's given us each other because we forget the gospel often. We lose our focus of the glory of God far too easily and we focus on ourselves far too often. That's why the author of Hebrews commands us to not neglect to meet with one another, to stir one another up to love and good works. That's why Paul is excited to preach the gospel to the Romans who had world famous faith because we forget all the time. The gospel is not just for unbelievers, it's for believers. You don't graduate from the gospel. And this is why we at Kairos, we're really particular about the songs that we sing here on a Tuesday night. The majority of our songs focus on God and who God is and what God has done. Few of them focus on us and who we are and what we have done because when we sing, 
we're singing to God, but we're also singing to one another. Paul tells us to address one another with these songs. And so if we are addressing one another with these songs, we better be pointing each other to Jesus. We better be pointing each other to God and what he has done, not us. The most that our songs talk about us is when they talk about how much we need God or how dependent we are upon God or how we will wait for God for he is the only one that can do anything. And so in our singing, in the order in which we sing the songs, in our praying, in our preaching, in our reading, we need to always be reminding each other of the gospel because we so easily forget it. So as great of a victory that Gideon achieved, in the end, he was still a sinner. His story ends tragically, and this is a pattern that we'll actually see throughout the rest of Judges and actually really the rest of the Old Testament. Israel longs for a king. Israel longs for a ruler to save them and to conquer their enemies. And this longing really goes all the way back to Genesis. This goes back to the garden where God promises Eve an offspring that would crush the head of the serpent. And so someone is supposed to come who would defeat our ultimate enemy, which is sin. And so as we continue reading, we'll see more judges rise up. We'll see people like Samson who will come up and seemingly save Israel for a little bit, but they turn out to be sinners and just as much under the curse of sin as everyone else. The same thing will happen with the kings. We'll see kings rise up. We'll get really, really close with David. Um, Israel finally has a good king with David. He's a man after God's own heart. And then there's this tension that kind of builds, this anticipation. There's this, these questions of could David be the one? Is David the king that will finally establish a kingdom of peace? Is this the king that will rule and reign forever? Is this the one who would crush the head of the serpent? But even David falls into sin with Bathsheba and he becomes an adulterer and a murderer. So David falls in with Gideon, falls in with Samson and all the rest of the judges and the kings and we're left wanting. We're left anticipating. We're left asking the question, when will the king come? Is there anyone who will rule and reign forever perfectly? Is there anyone who will defeat sin fully? And finally, is there anyone who will wear the crown and wield the scepter? Is anyone worthy? And then we have this in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Gideon was good, but he still fell into sin. David was good, but he still fell into sin. Our king is coming and he already conquered sin and the grave. And when he comes again, he will fully 
and finally defeat sin and death. He will wipe away every tear and his rule and his reign will be forever. And that is our hope as Christians. And so until he returns, until he calls us home, we must be vigilant to remain faithful, to remind each other of the gospel and know that God will provide the grace that we need. Let's pray together.